Great to see you guys. If you go to Israel with us this November, uh, the first thing that you're going to do on your first morning in the city of Jerusalem is you're going to go to the Mount of Olives. And uh, if you've ever been to the Mount of Olives, if you've ever seen it, seen a picture, a video, or something like that, I think the word mount is frankly a bit ambitious, okay? Uh, If you've been to Colorado, you've seen mountains. This is not a mount in that sense. I mean, it's a huge hill is what it is, like 2,600 feet tall, and it's east of Jerusalem, and it overlooks the Temple Mount, it's really an amazing place, and it's a very, very significant hill. And as you descend down this hill, you descend down through the Garden of Gethsemane. You may have heard about that. You might hear about that this week. As you study the passion of Christ, you descend down through this place where Jesus himself prayed that this cup of suffering that he suffered for us might be taken away. Is there some other way to do this? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And what was the will of the Father? It was drink the cup. Drink the cup. Well, that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers come out with Judas who betrays Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, and on and on it goes, you know? It's just like thing after thing. You descend down this hill, you descend down through the Garden of Gethsemane, you descend down into the Kidron Valley, again, significant biblically speaking, and you literally stand in a place that would have been in the shadow of the temple that stood in the days of Christ. It's stunning. And one of my favorite parts of the trip is doing exactly that. It is taking this road that our Lord Himself took on that day 2,000 years ago that we celebrate today as Palm Sunday. It's amazing. And hopefully you know the story of Palm Sunday. You know, Jesus is coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with His disciples, and He's coming with a whole host of people. Everybody, all the Jews from all over the place would descend, or actually, literally, they would ascend upon the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because it's elevated. And as they came, they would come singing the songs of ascent from the Psalms. And so the city's population would swell many times over, and Jesus is coming, and He's coming with His disciples, but not just His disciples, a whole bunch of people traveling together with Him, and He's coming toward the city, and as He approaches the city, He pulls two of His guys aside and says, listen, I'm going to give you some very careful instructions, some instructions that I don't think they got at the time, but I think they very clearly got later, and they came to understand on the backside of all of this as the fulfillment of the prophecy of the prophet Zechariah who wrote five and a half centuries before Jesus was even born, but who by the Spirit of God looked forward to this moment in the life of Christ that we together with all of the generations of believers who have lived since celebrate on this day. And he says, this is what that day is all about. Zechariah 9 verse 9, he says, rejoice greatly. And if you know the story, man, they rejoiced. Now, the question is, did they know what they were really rejoicing about? Rejoice greatly, he says, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. And they shouted, daughter of Jerusalem. But why? What's the big deal? I mean, what is this moment about? For your king, he says, behold. It means look. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. But how does he come? How would you have come? He comes humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, meaning a young donkey, an immature, in some sense, donkey. So Jesus calls his two guys aside. He said, listen, I've got a little assignment for you. I want you to go ahead of me to this village, this village, which you can actually see where it was as you stand on the Mount of Olives and sort of survey the land. And I want you to get for me a donkey, but it has to be a donkey that has never been ridden, a colt, the foal of a donkey, an immature, in some sense, donkey. 
Now, why is it important that it has never been ridden? Because any animal that was committed to a sacred use was never to have first been used for an ordinary use. And I know that we don't ride around on donkeys in Fort Lauderdale today, but in the first century, and even today to some degree, they ride donkeys. It's a very special donkey committed to the sacred use of the coming of King Jesus. It's incredible. So the disciples went off, and they got the donkey, and they brought the donkey back to Jesus, and Jesus got upon the donkey, and then Jesus began to ride down the Mount of Olives. He began to descend, you see, and He descended down the Mount of Olives. He descended through the Garden of Gethsemane. He descended through the Kidron Valley. He went up the other side, and either through the eastern gate or around the corner to the north. But in either case, He rode up into the Temple Mount is the idea, and as He went, a party broke out celebration started happening, and these people started taking off their cloaks, which would be like you and I taking off our coats. It's an outer garment, if you will, and they're throwing it down in front of this donkey that Jesus is riding on, and then they're cutting branches off the trees, and they're throwing them down in front of this donkey that Jesus is riding on. What are they saying with that? They're saying, we ourselves, as represented by these clothes, and our land, which produced this foliage, is under your feet, O king. And listen to what they said, for Luke records it. As they rejoice, they shout out, blessed is the king. So they get that he's a king. But maybe just not what kind of king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Jesus, they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's like they're looking at this, taking it all in and going, this is madness. Stop this madness. And Jesus then delivers one of the single coolest lines any person has ever delivered in all of history, okay? Make My Day by Clint Eastwood has nothing on this. Jesus looked at these guys who are his adversaries throughout the narrative of his life who don't get it. And he says, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. Wow. Top that one. As I went over that this week, I thought, you know, that's really encouraging to me, and I'll tell you why. Because I think sometimes my heart is like a stone. And Jesus Christ is such a king that my heart can't help but to cry out. So anyway... Jesus goes down the Mount of Olives. He goes through the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes up into the temple courts. The party is going on. The people are crying out. And he enters into the temple, and it's interesting, you know, it just kind of sort of ends. It's like the party ends. It says that the day ended, so it's late in the day when this occurs. And I don't know, maybe these people had to go home and make dinner or something. But I think maybe also they were trying to avoid the eye of the Romans, who didn't kind of like big parties and celebrations of kings other than Caesar. For, for whatever reason, it seems like the crowd disperses, the day ends, and the week began, you see, and not too many days later, Jesus is again surrounded by a crowd. But they're not crying shouts of blessing. They are not crying, you know, shouts of praise. This is, this is not shout of glory. You know what they're crying because you know the story, don't you? It's crucify Him. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. It's kind of a head-scratcher. 
And you wonder, what in the world happened? And I I think there's a lot of answers to that question, but one of the answers to the question, I think, also is what I would call unmet expectations. In other words, they expected one thing, they got another, and it made them angry. And that's the way, by the way, it works in life. Examine your own life. Look into your marriage for a minute. I mean, look into your relationships. Look into some of the business things that you've tried to do that haven't worked. Look into the hopes and the dreams and the plans and the expectations, there's the word, that you grew up with or that you've developed throughout the course of life that have crashed and burned. And then take a good look at the anger that you deal with in your life. And not just the anger, but the depression too, because depression is anger turned inward. And ask yourself, what's the connection? Because more often than not, it's unmet expectations. You thought you were getting one thing and you got something else entirely. And you know what? It ticked you off. These people were expecting a king who would deliver them from Rome. And boy, had they attached a lot of expectations to Jesus, and why would they not? I mean, think about it. He's raised the dead a couple of times. So his army is going to be pretty tough to defeat, I'm guessing, wouldn't you? He takes a few fishes and a few loaves, and he feeds 5,000, or actually, that's just the men in the crowd. So supplies are not going to be a big issue. He's charismatic like no one has ever been before. They're constantly amazed at his teaching, amazed at his teaching, amazed at his teaching. He takes the the, the brightest and the most brilliant, and he stands them on their head and spins them around. Jesus is a king, and they're celebrating all of this stuff. He's going to be the king that delivers them from Rome, but he's not. It's not his mission. What's his mission? It is to deliver them from sin and from Satan and from death. Now, step out of the narrative for a second and ask yourself, which one's more important? It's a total no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, as oppressive as Rome is, it's an easy choice, but it's not what they expected. And I think that happens to us in life too, you know? I mean, we're kind of thinking Jesus is our king and surely he loves us and this is kind of the plan that I've made for him in terms of what I'd like to see him do. And he's working off a different playbook. He is viewing your life from a completely different perspective. His vision is not limited the way that my vision is limited, the way that your vision is limited. He's not up in heaven scratching his head over the dilemmas that encounter you in your life. And here's the thing. We say things, I've said this so many times, you know, something occurs and I go, you know, I don't really need that. Watch out for that. Because if God is sovereign and He ordains all things and for your good, maybe it's exactly what you need. In fact, it must be. It's really something, isn't it? Don't be too quick to judge these people. We do it all the time. See, they're expecting a king who's going to deliver them politically. Well, He didn't come to deliver them politically. He came to deliver them spiritually. They expected a king who would know absolutely no defeat. What they got instead is a king who achieved his greatest victory through defeat. It's stunning. They expected one thing, they got another, and so it went from cries of blessing and peace and glory to cries of crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him, and you know the deal. In fact, He was crucified, He died, He was buried, and everyone thought, well, I guess that's it, including all of His disciples. But that wasn't it. A crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. No, 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 no. No. For on the third day, Jesus Christ came forth from the grave bodily, physically, literally, and victoriously over sin, over Satan, over death. And He ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, I might point out. 
another thing that happened there. And he assumed the right hand of God the Father Almighty, the throne of the universe, as we recited today together with all of our forefathers in the faith, as we recited the Apostles' Creed. And he reigns and rules right now as the king of the universe, and he will yet come. He will come bringing his kingdom in all of its fullness. But the question is, what kind of king is Jesus? Because I think if we've learned anything so far in the story, it is that the kingship of Jesus doesn't always meet with our expectations. But I hope that we've seen also that it's our expectations that are the problem. Jesus Christ is a king who brings us what we really need. What kind of king is Jesus? This morning, we're going to look at the answer to that in Psalm 72. We're not Zechariah this time, but David, the king of Israel, looks forward a thousand years. And by the power of the Spirit of God, he comprehends the king who is Christ and the kingdom which is Christ, and he sees the vision, and he describes it in poetry. He holds before us the kind of king Jesus is, the kind of kingdom that he brings. And he says this, verse 1, he says, "'Give the king your justice, O God.'" This is a prayer, you see. "'And your righteousness,' key word, "'to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice.'" And so for starters, what kind of king is Jesus? He's a just king. He's a righteous king. And what is the flavor, the nature, the character of his kingdom? It is one of justice. It is one of righteousness. And here's the good news. Frankly, that is what we're looking for. As you and I look around at this community, as we watch our television sets, as we check, you know, Yahoo and look at the news, as we look at our state, as we look at our country, as we look at our economy, as we look at our world, or maybe as we just look at our lives, because sometimes in life, that's all we can stand to look at. It's like, you know what? This is enough for me, and I don't have the energy to look at beyond this. What do we want? We want a place. We want a life. We want an existence where all the wrongs are made right where things are right and things are true and things are fair and things are equitable and things are just and things are untainted by things like corruption and crime and sin and sickness and and disease and death and all of the vestiges of unrighteousness. You see, and David's saying, hey, good news, that's the kind of king Jesus is. It's the kingdom that He's bringing and that He will bring in all of His fullness when He returns. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness. And then he's going to give us an adjective now because now he's going to begin to describe who the subjects of Jesus are. Who are the true people of God? He says, and your poor with justice. And that's just adjective number one. See, as we run through the psalm, you're going to hear some other ones. It's poor, it's needy, it's afflicted, and it's oppressed. Those are basically the four. Those are the people that cry out to Jesus for help. Those are the people who receive the benefits of His royal reign. Those are the true subjects of His kingdom. And the problem that we have with that is that when we get up in the morning and look in the mirror, those are not the adjectives that we would use to describe ourselves. We don't get up in the mirror, most of us anyway, most of the times of our lives and say, there I am, poor, needy, afflicted, and oppressed. First thing that came to mind today when I looked at you, you know, It's not it. And yet we are. Every single one of us, and the only question is, do we realize that? That's it. We had a funeral here a week ago Saturday for a really wonderful man, 89-year-old man, one of the fathers of one of our elders, and uh, 
And he lived the past couple of uh, years at a Covenant Village, which is a retirement community out west. And one of the things that he did, and I thought this was kind of funny, is he joined the harmonica band. Now, the funny part was that he didn't know how to play the harmonica. But apparently that doesn't matter. So I thought that was awesome. So he joins the harmonica band, you know, and the harmonica band turned out in force for his memorial service, and we knew that they were coming, and so we kind of got ready, and we got some chairs up here on the stage and all that stuff. And then when they pulled up in the Covenant Village bus, we realized that the chairs and the stage and anything having to do with stairs or obstacles was a real problem, okay? Just take the chairs down. Why? Why? Because age has taken away their independence, their ability to go up and down stairs. It's not funny. It's reality. It's reality for them, and it's where, you know, if we all live long enough, we'll all be. Think about life for a minute, you know? I mean, you come out of the womb and you are completely dependent on somebody else. They change your diaper. They wipe your nose. They feed you. They dress you. They bathe you. They clean you. They burp you. Whole shooting match. I mean, what is it exactly you can do for yourself? Answer, nothing other than scream when you need something. Utterly dependent, right? And then if you live long enough, how does it end? Kind of the same way. And here's the deal. In between, we have the illusion of independence. So they came in. We got the chairs off the stage, and they sat down here, and they played and they sang. By the way, they played and sang as those who really meant it. It was the highlight of the whole service. Pretty magnificent. And I was sitting next to um, one of our elders, and I said something like, you know, that's going to be us someday, I mean, if we live long enough. And then I thought about it later in the day, and I thought, you know, there is at least a sense in which that's me now. Not physically, but spiritually. I mean, spiritually speaking, when you take the record of my life and you compare it to the demands of the law of God, which is absolute obedience to His absolutely, blazingly holy, on-fire perfect law, I can't even get off the bus. Forget about the walker, you know. In fact, I'm not just disabled. I'm dead. I'm the guy they came to play and sing at the funeral of, to extend the analogy. But here's the deal. And this is what you need to see to really grasp this psalm. I understand that. I know that I am poor, that I am needy, that I am afflicted, and that I am oppressed by sin, by Satan, and by death, and I need this King. Speaking of the reign and rule of King Jesus, David says this, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And then he says something that really struck their ears a whole lot differently than it does ours. And it's beautiful. He says, let the mountains bear prosperity. It means literally let them bring tidings or the message of peace. Let the mountains bring the message of peace, he's saying, for the people and the hills and righteousness. May he defend this king, the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Now, why is that so wonderful? What's so cool about that image? Well, the cool thing is that back in the ancient days, before they had cell phones and satellites and all the kind of communication devices that we have today... They established lookouts on the mountains and the hills that would extend all the way out to the boundaries of their land. You see, and these lookouts were responsible for looking out, all right? It's not a trick. 
But what are they looking out for? Invading armies. And when they saw one, they would light a bonfire. They would light a beacon on the top of the mountain or on top of the hill. And then the next guy in the next hill who would see the beacon, he would light his. And then the next guy in the next hill who would see the beacon, he would light his. And see these beacons by means of fire atop the mountains would spread all over the land. And so the mountains in the days of Christ and many centuries before and after brought tidings of war. Not in the reign of King Jesus not for those of us who recognize our spiritual poverty and desperate need for Him. They bring tidings of peace, you see, as He defends our cause, as He delivers us from the oppressor. Let the mountains bear prosperity. Let them bring tidings of peace, He's saying, for the people in the hills in righteousness. May He defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. And then having described sort of the nature of the king and of his kingdom and the proper subjects of his kingdom, those of us who recognize our spiritual poverty and need for him, he then goes on to speak of the extent of his kingdom. In other words, how long does this kingdom last? And he uses images to describe it. He says, may they fear you while the sun endures. And as long, you hear the similitude, as long as the moon throughout all generations. So he's holding up something that's enduring and something that isn't, generations. What is he saying? He's recognizing something that we ought to recognize, which is that you and I, every single day, look at the same sun and the same moon that every person who has ever lived on planet earth has ever looked at, and that every person who will ever live on planet earth will ever look at. It transcends the generations. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus has. It is not like us. It doesn't perish. It never ends is the idea. And he goes on. He gives us another few images. He says, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. You hear the two different things? Like showers that water the earth. Well, how long have the showers watered the earth? Always. How long will they always, how long will they water the earth? Always. But what about the grass? I mean, come on. It grows up. We cut it down. 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 And so are the generations of men. I remember my great-grandparents well. They grew up. They were mowed down. See, I remember my grandparents well. Gone. My parents, hope they're not listening to the tape of this. They're next. And then I'm up to bat. That's a big difference, isn't there? The kingdom of the Lord and the kingship of the Lord is not like us. He never dies and is replaced by another king, and then he dies and is replaced by another king, and then he dies and it... No. It's an eternal kingdom. He says, in his days, may the righteous flourish. Wow, wouldn't that be refreshing? May the righteous flourish, and peace abound, but how long until the moon is no more, which in his poetic imagination is never. He will reign forever and ever is the idea. But where is he going to reign? Because he answers that next. And is it just in Jerusalem? Is that it? I mean, is it just the nation state of Israel? Is that as big as the kingdom of this Jesus, this king, this great God is? No. 
Absolutely not. He says, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So he's going back to the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, where God describes, in a sense, this land that I'm going to give to you, Abraham, and he uses these rivers. Well, he's calling back to that, and he's saying, from the rivers, not to the other river, but to the ends of the earth. And in every direction, he's saying his kingdom encompasses the entire earth. All of it is holy. And then he says, may the deserts tri- the desert tribes. Now, you know, I mean, we don't have desert tribes now in America anyway. What is he talking about? He's talking about nomads. He's talking about Bedouins. He's talking about people who are so averse to authority that they take their families and they move out into the middle of the desert where no one will bother them. They live in the middle of nowhere, and they do it intentionally. They don't want to be taxed. They don't want to be, you know, drafted into the army. And if anybody comes along and tries to do either of those, they just pull up their ten pegs and, you know, load up their camels, and they go further out into the desert. There's a reason when you look at the boundaries between these nations that a lot of times you just see a straight line. It's in the middle of the desert. It's like, yeah, just, you know, how about here? Nobody's there. But the kingdom of Christ is there in the imagination of David. And even the most unruly of people, the most averse to authority, you see, he envisions them bowing as well. He says, may the desert tribes bow down before him. And oh, then this is cool. And he says, and his enemies lick the dust. See, now he goes back before Abraham to Genesis 3, where Satan the serpent comes in the garden, bringing sin and bringing death and reducing mankind, which was formed from the dust of the ground, if you know the story, back to dust. And what is the curse upon the serpent? God says, on your belly you will go, and you will eat the dust. David is saying, the enemies of this king will share the fate of the serpent. And they will. He says, may the kings of Tarshish, which was considered in the ancient imagination the most remote place on the planet. It's in Spain near the pillars of Hercules. He says, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba to the far south. He's just calling out remote locations is the idea. Bring him gifts. And then he just says, may all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. See, he sees and envisions a kingdom that encompasses everyone, everywhere. Parenthetically, that's the goal of the gospel. That's the point of the Great Commission. That's what Christ, by His power and His Spirit, calls us to engage in, and that is what He will yet bring. And the cool thing is, it's actually happening. I know we tend to think that it's not. You know, I mean, we complain about all the things that have changed and mostly grouse about stuff and And we miss what the Spirit is really doing, not just here but all over the world. And again, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll see just a small taste of that. The last place you will go on your tour, in Jerusalem at least, is a place called the Garden Tomb. And it may or may not have been the place that Jesus was buried and raised from the dead. You know, it is located next to this amazing skull-like looking rock figure, so that's striking. But whether it is or isn't, you tour this tomb and then you go out into this kind of garden, if you will. It's an ancient vineyard. But they've created almost like a park, and they've created places where you can go with your particular church group, and there's lots of church groups there, and you can do some teaching on the resurrection, but you also take communion. It's one of the most profound communion experiences I think that you can have. And if you're quiet, what do you think you hear? You hear languages. 
You hear people from the remotest parts of the world, all of which have converged on this one place. You hear singing of songs that sometimes you recognize, maybe, you know, kind of like you pick up the tune and go, oh, yeah, I think I know that one, but you have no idea, I mean, the language itself. May all the nations serve Him. The kingdom of God is going forward into the world, and David sees it. And he sees so much more of it. He says, may all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. But why? For he delivers the needy when he calls. He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper, but you only call if you recognize that that's a description of you. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems, he purchases their life. And precious is their blood, which represents their life in His sight. Then He gives us a little phrase from which we get that phrase, long live the king. You've heard that all your life, haven't you? You've seen it in movies. You know, long live the king. That comes from this. It's referent ultimately as Christ. Long may He live. May the gold of Sheba, the very best of the very best, be given to him because that is what he is due. Not our leftovers, the very best of the very best. May that be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. And then he gives us this next great image. He says, may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may the people blossom in the cities like the grass of the fields. The grass of the fields flower. It's the picture of a beautiful people. But there are many in evangelicalism today who will go to a statement like this, a statement of poetry, either here or somewhere else in the prophets, and they'll say, well, you know, I mean, if you go to the nation-state of Israel today, you realize that, I mean, they're very technologically advanced, certainly more so than their neighbors, and they have irrigated, in a sense, the deserts, and they have created a huge industry of agriculture, and that's what this is talking about. Please. It's not what this is talking about. This is poetry from beginning to end. It is altogether full of images. David, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is collecting up images that we understand, and he's using them in this particular instance to communicate to us an abundance that is ours through faith in Christ that is so much greater and far more profound than anything agriculture has ever or will ever produce. And that's saying a lot. poetry. David is speaking of the abundance that is ours through faith in Christ who himself came into the world. And what did he say? I didn't just come to give you life. I came to give it to you abundantly. And who himself offered his body and blood that he might give to us a bread that satisfies even the deepest hunger and a wine that satisfies even the deepest thirst. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and the people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May we be beautiful. May His name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in Him. All nations call Him blessed. And it's like He's overwhelmed with what He has said and He breaks into doxology, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. The Bible makes no bones about the fact that wondrous things is the territory of God alone. 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. And then he writes, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. He puts down his pen and he writes no more. What a way to end. So Jesus gets up on his donkey, you know, dedicated to the sacred use of his entry. And he starts his ride. And the people throw down their cloaks and the palm branches, presumably, as if to say, we're under your feet, and so also is our land, you are our king. And he rides down as they shout his praises and rides up into the temple mount. And not long after, it's crucify him, crucify him. Oh, he's a king. He's just not always the king that we expect. But he is the king we need. Is he not? And so he's crucified, he's buried. And on the third day, he comes forth from the grave, victorious over sin, over Satan, and over death, defeating his and our enemies in our place. And he ascends to the right hand of God in heaven, from which he reigns and rules today, and from which he will yet come, bringing his kingdom in all of its glory and it's all of, in all of its fullness, and He is a just and a righteous King. His kingdom is flavored by righteousness and by justice. It is unlimited in time. It is unlimited in space. All the heavens and all the earth is holy before Him, and forever the nations will gather in homage to Him, and all the peoples will bow the knee and serve Him. For He offers life in abundance to all who believe, and in Him, meaning by faith, in Him, all are blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise the name of Your glorious Son who came in humility riding the colt of a donkey and who offers to each of us life in abundance, who is the King who brings what we really need. I pray, Lord, that You would strike us with the profound poverty of our own souls with the depth of our depravity, with the, the size of our neediness, that you might drive us to this King who freely offers His body and His blood, that we might be fully satisfied, forgiven, and found as members of your kingdom, as children of you. We thank you for this Lord's Day that celebrates His triumphal entry, and we thank you for His triumph over sin and Satan and death for each one of us. I pray, Lord, that you would use this to change our hearts, which are sometimes like stone, into hearts of clay, into hearts full of praise. Give us your joy, we ask, for your glory. Amen.